0: Shortle, and you're listening to the December 30th, 2009 podcast from the Kansas Historical Society. In this podcast, museum staff reveal the story behind the story about artifacts featured on the Cool Things section of our website, kshs.org. museums have dolls in their collection, but how many have a peasant doll holding a hoe and smoking a cigar? Join curator Laurel French and me as we take a look at an unusual doll whose dress is made from a sugar sack. And then, with another New Year looming on the horizon, we went with a rockin' New Year's Eve theme for this episode of Six Degrees of William Allen White, and we asked you to connect the Sage of Emporia to the ageless Dick Clark. Did Dick Clark really DJ at White's wedding? Find out when we play Six Degrees of Lily Mallon White. But first, Sugar Sack Doll.
1: drink a lot of coffee, spend a little cash, make that girl love me when I put on some trash. You can
0: understand why I've got to get back up to that sugar shop. Oh, yes. So good morning, Laurel. Um, I understand you have a doll you're going to talk about today. What can you tell us about it?
2: Well, I have a small cloth doll that I'd like to tell you about today, and it looks like a peasant woman. She's wearing a light blue dress with white flowers, a blue kerchief over her head, and she's wearing a white apron. And she's also carrying a backhoe in her hand, and she has a cigar coming from her mouth.
0: Oh, interesting. A backhoe and a cigar. That's a little crazy. Um, Do you know who made this doll and why they put a cigar in her mouth?
2: Well, I don't, um, which is what made me want to find out a lot more about this. So, I started to do some research into it, and uh, when an object comes into our collection, the museum records as much information about it as we can. But, unfortunately, when this item came into our collection, we had no information about who owned it. So, um, I looked around at the doll, and unfortunately there weren't any tags or any manufacturing marks in the doll, so that didn't really help either. So, finding out about this doll was a lot more challenging than I thought it would be.
0: Um, So, how did you go about researching?
2: Well, after I looked at the stitching of the doll, it seemed like it might have been homemade. And also, the apron that the doll is wearing had some blue printing on it. It said, 5 pounds, new weight, and then underneath that it said, CK Frost. So, during the De- Great Depression and the early years of World War II, people often made items such as dolls from sugar and flour bags. So, this was before sugar and flour bags were made out of paper like they are now. They were just made out of plain cloth that was pretty tightly woven to mm-hmm. make sure that the
0: flowers and sugar wouldn't escape. Well, and some of them were kind of decorated, weren't they? mm mm-hmm. Like flowers, or no, am I making yeah. that up? Yeah, <laughs> no, no, no. Some of them did get,
2: you know, really nice colors and mm-hmm. things like that, too.
0: So uh, you, you said something about CK, C.K. Frost. What did you find out about that?
2: Well, it turns out that C.K. Frost was actually just a partial printing of the entire brand name Jack Frost, which stands for Jack Frost Sugar Company. And so... Those different clues helped me figure out that I think that this doll was probably made from the recycled cloth of a Jack Frost sugar bag and probably was made somewhere around the Great Depression
0: or the early years of World War II. So why were people reusing this cloth from the flour and sugar bags during this time?
2: well when resources became limited and materials became scarce during that time period recycling of just about everything became really popular things like tin cans and cloth and other things like that because it was a way for people to have quote unquote new objects without having to pay the ridiculous prices for them so american companies being what american companies are were really quick to recognize and to capitalize on this recycling trend and companies began producing cloth for their bags like you were talking about that had really colorful designs and patterns that would appeal to the buyers who would then reuse the cloth for whatever objects they wanted to make and um, the National Sugar Refining Company of New Jersey who made Jack Frost Sugar, Mm -hmm. they came up with kind of an innovative way of doing this, taking advantage of this recycling trend and they made bags that were assembled from a single piece of cloth that was then folded in half and stitched along just the top side and it was just closed up with a piece of string so what that design meant was that somebody who had bought this bag could just remove that one piece of string and the entire cloth would be ready to reuse again really easily so it was really a way of for people to make items that were considered luxuries very cheaply at home of secondhand material and it was driven by both the consumers who wanted to recycle these materials and the manufacturers as well who were designing these materials that could be so easily recycled.
0: And so what are the kind of things that people make with these sacks besides dolls?
2: Um, Larger feed sacks, as mm-hmm. what they would be called, um, think like potatoes or something like that, they could be made into full-size dresses. Mm. Um, also, regular shirts and mm-hmm. skirts and things like that. Um, so it's true <laughs> when you think about, you know, the old poor person wearing a potato sack. That actually sort of, to a certain degree, happened.
0: Did they get printed with fancy Yes,
2: yes, they on. did. Huh. And um, some of them can go for a considerable amount of money on places like eBay and things like that.
0: Cool. Um, So you were able to find out what kind of person made this doll, but that still leaves us with the question of why this doll was made to resemble a peasant. Did you find any clues to help you with that?
2: Well, after I kind of figured out that the doll was probably from the Great Depression era, or early World War II, Then I started to think about the Kansas Museum Project, and that was a program that was a branch of the Federal Work Project Administration, which was a relief agency that was created during the New Deal. So it lasted from about 1938 to 1941. And the Kansas Museum Project produced a catalog containing images which guided the creation of dolls And they had various visual aids like templates Mm -hmm. that they would have in this catalog to be used by schools and museums so that they would have, so that whoever was using this catalog would have an idea of what the traditional dress of, say, Norway was or China or something like that. And so a lot of the images in this catalog depict people, as I said, in ethnic dress. And two of the female figures that I saw illustrated were smoking pipes. So it is possible that whoever made this doll might have been inspired by one of the images that they saw in this Kansas Museum Project catalog, which we have in our archives, by the way.
0: Great. Was this doll donated by someone who was it a family piece?
2: I honestly don't know. Unfortunately, our records just don't say. Yeah. I really wish that we had more information on it, but sometimes that's just how research goes. Yep. yep.
0: Okay. Well, one last question, since it's the holiday season, yes. um, and we're talking about dolls. Did you ever? Do you have a favorite doll that you've gotten from Christmases past?
2: No, I, I don't really um, I never really played much with dolls When I was little, actually Maybe you
0: needed one smoking a cigar and carrying a backhoe
2: There you go <laughs> That would have inspired me to play more with dolls Exactly, <laughs> <laughs> if I had one with a cigar in his mouth
0: Great, well thanks for stopping by today, Laurel Well, thank
2: you very much and have a happy holiday yeah, You too Oh, but I thought
1: I'd ask you just the same What are you doing?
0: It's time for another round of Six Degrees of William Allen White. Joining me today is Museum Director Bob Ketgeisen. Hello. And Assistant Registrar Nikayla Zimmerman. Hi. Tomorrow is New Year's Eve, and if there's one person who has come to be most associated with this celebration, it's Dick Clark. Now, people Bob's age, well, maybe a little older. Yeah, a little <laughs> Would probably argue that it's Guy Lombardo. Who?
3: <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Thanks
0: for that. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but younger generations have been ringing in the New Year with Dick Clark n- now for nearly 40 years. So to mark this festive into another year, we asked you to connect William Allen White to America's oldest teenager. (laughs) Bob, can you tell us about Dick Clark?
3: Well, sure. Um, Well, Richard Wagstaff Clark. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Better known as Dick Clark. (laughs) Uh, So that is his real name, which is kind of unusual for people in show business. anyway, he was born on November 30th, 1929 in Mount Vernon, New York. So he would have just turned 80 last month. Uh, His career in show business began in 1945 while he was still in his teens when he went to work in the mailroom of radio station WRUN in Utica, New York. and He was soon promoted to weatherman and news announcer and then when it came time to go to college, he attended and subsequently graduated from Syracuse University in 1951 with a degree in business. Now, Shortly after graduation, he began his television career at WKTV in Utica, where one of his duties was hosting a country music program, Cactus Dick and the Santa Fe Riders. (laughs) So I'll just pause and let you insert your own joke there. Uh, I'm not touching that one, particularly with the name Cactus in the the title. So in 1952, he moved to Philadelphia and took a job as a disc jockey at radio station WFIL. And they had an affiliated TV station uh, with the same call sign. And that same year, he went to work for the TV side of it when they began broadcasting a music show called Bob Horn's Bandstand. Well, that wasn't Clark's show, but he was the regular substitute host. And when Bob Horn left... Uh, Clark became the full-time host in July of 1956. Well, that show was picked up by ABC and began airing nationally in 1957 and was renamed American Bandstand. And the rest, as we get tired of saying in this business, is history, but, uh, because almost every top music act from the 1950s through the 80s appeared on American Bandstand. I mean, I grew up with the show, and typically a show would feature one live, and that's in quotes, live musical performance, because mostly the acts were just lip-synced, right? mm-hmm. Remember the Dave Clark Five doing a particularly bad job of that, um, and then the remainder of the show would be teenagers dancing to top forty records spun by Clark, and then most of the shows featured the rate of record segment, you know, where a couple would be asked to give a numerical score to whatever song they just played, and this launched the much parodied phrase, "Well, it's got a great beat and you can dance to it." <laughs> Um, I guess that was the standard phrase everybody used. Well, anyway, Clark went on to become quite the media mogul through his eponymous Dick Clark Productions, which, in addition to American Bandstand, has turned out uh, such television classics as the Golden Globe Awards. They produce that every year, So You Think You Can Dance, the American Music Awards, and the classic TV bloopers and practical jokes. Yay! And in case you're wondering whether he put that business degree to good use, in 2007 he sold Dick Clark Productions for $175 million. Very nice. Yeah, so um, not, not a bad chunk of change. But anyway, one of the longest-running television shows that came out of Dick Clark Productions is Dick Clark's New Year's Rockin' Eve. He began hosting this annual countdown to the new year in 1972, and with the exception of a couple of years after he suffered a stroke in 2004, he's been hosting it ever since, and he'll be back in the saddle tomorrow night. To usher in the new decade, so mm-hmm. everybody, be sure to watch.
0: All right. So. Well, thank you, Bob, mm-hmm. and to Kayla,
1: Let's hear your solution. Okay. Well, Morgan and I probably know Dick Clark better from TV's bloopers and practical jokes. <laughs> yes. I know that's how I remember him. Um, he co-hosted that with Ed McMahon from 1984 to 1998. So a big part of our mm-hmm. growing up years. Um, Though Ed McMahon was best known as Johnny Carson's sidekick, he also appeared in a few films, including a movie called Fun with Dick and Jane that starred Jane Fonda. And as we all know, Jane Fonda was the daughter of another noted actor, Henry Fonda. Well, in um, 1974 and 75, Henry Fonda played attorney Clarence Adaro, who is best known um history as the attorney from the Scopes Monkey Trial and the trial of Leopold and Loeb um, in Chicago. And if you've been listening to the podcast for very long, you know that William Allen White met Darrow in Chicago at the home of um, the publisher Chauncey Williams. Um, Williams was a friend of both men, and he um, also published some of White's books. So.
3: Wow, good solution. There you <laughs> go. Uh,
1: yeah, yeah, who, who would have thought Clarence Darrow would yeah. <laughs> to Clark.
3: <laughs> well, I'm sure you would have been on TV bloopers if he'd had the opportunity. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Legal <laughs> malapropisms and things like that.
0: Bob, would you like to issue the challenge for the next episode?
3: You bet. Well, our next podcast will be the first podcast of 2010, which in the Chinese calendar is the year of the tiger. <laughs> oh, oh, no, no. <laughs> yeah, you saw this one coming. <clears throat> So we want you to connect William Allen White to golf legend Tiger Woods. We figure he hasn't been in the news much lately, so we thought he'd appreciate the exposure that only our wildly popular podcasts can bring. I think yeah.
1: connecting him to William Allen White might save his reputation, yeah. you know, give him a little credibility. Yeah.
3: Now, if we find out they share particular people in common, oh. that could get kind of yeah. interesting. <laughs> I don't even know where to go. <laughs> <laughs>
0: so if you think you can, can connect William Allen White to the man who was just named Athlete of the Decade, and that was by the Associated Press, not Maxim Max. Max
3: <laughs> <laughs> Although it could have been. <laughs>
0: <laughs> just send your solution to podcasts at kshs.org. That's podcasts with an S. This crazy little show. That concludes episode 97, Sugar Sack Doll. To see photos of the doll, go to our website, kshs.org, and click on podcasts. These podcasts aren't our only presence on the worldwide interweb. The Kansas Historical Society is also on Facebook and Twitter. Both are a great way to keep up with everything happening at the place for Kansas history. So come be our friend on Facebook and start following us on Twitter. You'll be one of the cool kids in the know. Come back in two weeks when assistant museum director Rebecca Martin tells us about paintings by Mariana Grisnik, an artist of Croatian descent who was born, raised, and still lives in the Strawberry Hill neighborhood in Kansas City. Join us in two weeks to find out how the paintings of this self-taught artist are helping to preserve the history of Strawberry Hill. This podcast has been a production of the Kansas Historical Society. Real people, real stories. Yeah, honey,
3: that sugar shack Now that sugar shack